Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them who were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on, off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, all over the world, where the Christian truth is being proclaimed with courage and accuracy, the rule of Jesus is advancing. At the end of the 20th century in the United Kingdom, sociologists were predicting the death of Christianity. And on my shelves in my study at home are books on the death of Christian Britain, secularization at its triumph, and even on the death of God. Two particular titles always struck me, a guy called A.N. Wilson, God's Funeral. A.N. Wilson has subsequently returned to his Christian faith with great determination, and a chap called Ludovic Kennedy, All in the Mind. But then those who studied the statistics began to look outside of Europe, and the facts on the ground were undeniable. The then editors of The Economist produced a book called God is Back, which I suspect God viewed with a degree of irony as he looked at the title. I don't think he ever felt he went away. But the phenomena of the growth of Christianity is undeniable, so much so that Micklethwaite and the guy Wooldridge, who he wrote with, described it as a modern wonder of the world. In China, amongst the intellectuals, in India, in Latin America, and today in Africa, the ferocious advance of the Christian gospel, even in places like Iran and Afghanistan, two of the fastest growing churches in the world. 
all over the world where the Christian truth is being proclaimed with courage, accuracy, and conviction, the rule of Jesus is advancing. Now, somebody was saying to themselves, well, what about the, the West? Well, we are living at the back end of a loss of courage in the truth of Jesus by leaders of the established church in the United Kingdom and Western Europe. It all began in the late 19th century, around about 1875, in the German universities, if you're interested. However, even here in London today, where churches are proclaiming the truth of Jesus with courage, accuracy, conviction, that truth is gripping men and women. I was talking to my predecessor. He is now 98. His birthday was last Sunday. And I popped in to see Dick Lucas, who was rector here for 37 years. And we were chatting about this yesterday. He said in the 1920s and 30s, it was the height of the lack of confidence in the word of God stemming for the late 19th century. And you would have found it hard push to find anybody in a church teaching from the Bible the way that we're going to be doing this evening. Then came 1945 and a real beginning of a resurgence. Come to the 1980s. I used to come to church here in the 1980s. You come back from Germany where I was serving with the British Army. And it was, you might find five churches where the Bible was open as it is this evening. Today, 40, 50, all over the world where the church is being proclaimed with courage and conviction, where the, the message of Jesus is being proclaimed with courage and conviction, you will find the Christian truth and the kingdom of Jesus is growing. That is precisely what Jesus said would happen. That's why I asked for those verses to be there on your sheet. And you can see from Luke chapter 24, well, we've just said the words together, haven't we? Thus is, is written that the Christ must suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Two musts, two things that will certainly happen. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the world. It's exactly what's happening today. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, and this truth is being proclaimed. Now, this ties in with the section that we are in, in this book of the ongoing acts of Jesus. We're thinking about in these first weeks here on a Sunday evening. The last verse I've jotted down in your introduction is the close of the section that we are looking at over these first six weeks. And you'll notice it finishes... Chapter 19, verse 20, so mightily grew the word of Jesus and triumphed and prevailed. And what we're being shown, and you've got it on these maps that Tim so helpfully put together, although I think he got slightly lost somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean. I think it's Paul's shipwreck, why you've got all these squiggly lines, quite how he knows how Paul's shipwreck went. I, I don't know. But anyway, there we go. It's a good, 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 good stuff for a geographer. Geog- well, you're not a geographer, are you? Anyway, there we go. it looks good. It's good, nice colors as well. For us geographers, we like that kind of thing. But um, w- what we're seeing is the mighty advance into whole new territory I- into Europe for the very first time. And what we've seen so far is God 
overruling Paul's travel plans, God opening the heart of a woman so that she would receive the message, God intervening with an earthquake, and then the result, confusion, accusation, false accusation as the gospel advances. We've got to get our expectations right. In your school, in your college, in your place of work, as the gospel advances, hostile opposition. King Jesus, surrender, inevitably, opposition. Well, today we're going to drill down into just three or four verses. We've looked, if you like, at what God has been doing. I want us to look today at what Paul is doing. I want us to see the method Paul used and the message Paul spoke. That will enable us, if you like, to hold a plumb line up against any church that we might choose to attend, the kind of work we need to be engaged in, wherever we happen to find ourselves, as the gospel advances. What does it look like, if you like, from Paul's perspective? So the method. I want us to look very closely at verses 2 and 3. Let's take it from verse 1 of chapter 17. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, this is what Paul did. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. Let's take each in turn. The word reason is the word that means to speak from one side to another. It's the word from which we get our word dialogue. It means to converse, to discourse, to argue, to discuss. The word is used repeatedly as a description of what Paul did. If you're interested, chapter 17, verse 2 and 17, chapter 18, verse 4 and 19, chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, chapter 20, verse 9. In fact, when Luke later says that Paul was occupied with the word... What he was doing was reasoning, dialoguing. When he does this, it's summed up as preaching. And the big words for preaching, uh, gospeling, are used to describe the activity of reasoning. That's important. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writing to the Thessalonians after he's been in Thessalonica says, our gospel came to you not only with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. That is, the words that came struck to the heart. It was as if God himself were speaking. In other words, the work of dialogue and reason came with all of God's persuasive power. Was it a sustained monologue like This has been, so far, without interruption. Maybe. Was it back and forth with Q&A? Well, when we get to chapter 17 later on, we'll find there's a lot of Q&A. There's even a follow-up question and answer meeting. Certainly, the sustained monologue was part of the norm in the synagogues. It can't have been all that happened. Questions were asked. Paul answered them. There were follow-up meetings. It's all summed up 
as preaching the word. This, I think, really matters because we so often think, oh, well, preaching the word is just what happens from, you know, this pulpit. It's this high, incidentally, so you can speak into the gallery, not just say, I'm be six foot above anybody complaining or anything like that. But, but it's, uh, we often think, oh, well, it's just the sort of sustained monologue that is preaching the word. No, 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 no. The reasoning, the back and forth with power, with conviction. Next, he was explaining and you can see that in verse 3, explaining. And the word is a fascinating one. It literally means opening. It is a word that is used for the opening of the womb with the birth of the firstborn child. Sorry if that uh, is too graphic for you and it's like oversharing. But the reason it's fascinating is that it's the same word that is used in chapter 16. Just flick back a page, will you? Chapter 16, verse 14. Here we see there was a woman named Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. Uh, She's a seller of purple goods. She's a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Now, Paul opens the scriptures. And you get exactly the same at the end of Luke's gospel when their eyes were opened to recognize Jesus. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? So it seems that the Lord opens a person's heart to pay attention to the word, but that the way the Lord opens a person's heart is as the scriptures are opened to them. There is a divine dimension. There is a human dimension. I trust that I am opening the scriptures to you now. And we're looking at how the gospel word advances across the known world. We're in Acts 17, just in case anybody's slightly lost. But even as I'm speaking and opening the words, so God is at work doing his part, if you like, opening hearts to understand. This is not a merely human enterprise. This is a divine exercise. God is at work. I'm at work. The two are working side by side. This is the way the Christian gospel, the rule of Jesus, advances across the world through reasoning, through the opening of scriptures. It's what makes this Sunday meeting so remarkable. Or or the Wednesday evening, read, mark, learn, or student evening when you come to study the word of God. So unique. It's what makes uh, us want to prioritize it above everything else in our calendar. Because this is the moment that God is going to open his word to us and open our hearts as the scriptures are opened. Uh, There's a guy called John Stott. He's written an excellent commentary on Acts. He puts it like this. We note that although the message was Paul's, the initiatives was God. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it. The Lord's work was not itself direct. He chose to work work through Paul's preaching. It's always the same. And then he was demonstrating. And again, it's a brilliant word. It means literally that word proving there to put something before someone. It's 
used of putting something on the table when you put a meal in front of somebody. Wednesday evening was a great evening for me. There was the whole of the student group, 30 of them, I think, in our house, and they were being cooked for, and there was a welcome evening here as well. I have worked out that if you're quick enough, you can get the dinner at the welcome evening, and then you can get down to the student evening and have a second dinner down there. It was absolutely terrific. Curry in both places. Perhaps we should vary the diet a bit, but next year you could give it a go. Um, anyway, but in both places, put before, on the table, a meal. That's the word there, putting before. And so Paul's method is very straightforward and very simple. He reasons, he opens the scriptures, he puts the truth before people. And extraordinarily, as that takes place, God works. How does the rule of Jesus advance? Well, I think it's worth noting that little phrase, as was his custom. Somebody said to me last week, you know, we've talked about earthquakes and God supernaturally intervening to change plans and visions and so forth. Was that normal? Is that normal? Well, God certainly brought those things about. But the normal activity of Paul, as was his custom was the simple, straightforward, reasoning, opening, and laying before of the scriptures. And then God did these other things. I think it's worth also noting the place of the mind in authentic Christianity. That New Testament Christianity never bypasses the mind. We have a problem here because when we read heart, we think emotion. But in the New Testament, in Greek days, you felt emotion in the gut. I was gutted. But the heart was where you thought, where you made your decisions, what all of you was. It included the emotion, but it was the reason, the prioritizing. And Paul goes for the reason, for the whole of me, for my thinking, for my brain, for my intellect, for my decision-making, for my priorities. He's wanting to persuade me from the scriptures. He's not just trying to wish me this way and wash me that way with my emotions. If your Christian faith is founded only on your emotions, it's profoundly shallow. But if it's grounded in the truth and in reason, and in fact, you're on solid ground, and the emotion will follow. And then the third little thing to note is the kind of ministry that we're going to engage in. What I hope you will find here, and what I hope we will look for wherever we go as Christian men and women, if that's what we are, Authentic Christianity is, if you like, driven forward as the scriptures are explained, as the scriptures are laid before a person, and as a person is reasoned with, dialogued with, to win the whole individual. And at a time of year like this, when lots of people are looking for churches to go to, I hope that's what you're going to look for. I hope that's what you're going to prioritize because we're being shown here this is the way 
the authentic gospel is carried forward. There is the method. But if the apostle was occupied with the word, we need to ask ourselves what that word was. And he tells us what the word was in verses three through uh, verse three and the beginning of verse four. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he's talking about a real person. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about real history. And and the word Christ simply means anointed one. It's the Greek for Messiah. And the whole of the first part of the Bible contains God's promise that the Christ, the anointed one, was the one appointed by God to be the ruler of all nations. Now, I try and read a bit of the Bible every day. And uh, on Monday this week, I try and read a psalm every day and another part of the scriptures. Monday this week was Psalm 72. Listen to Psalm 72's description of the Christ. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him. May kings render him tribute. May all kings fall before him and all nations serve him. Is is anybody left out there? I think not. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Psalm 2. The whole of the teaching of the first part of the Bible is that there is one God. He has one king that all nations and all peoples should surrender to his one rule. And Paul came into every situation in which he found himself brought there by God. And wherever he went, he heralded the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Christ the ruler of all, regardless of current belief or current practice or current thought system. Jesus Christ is Lord. (laughs) I love uh, the description. I hope this doesn't cause you upset if you're from France, but I love the description of Admiral Lord Nelson taking the surrender of of a French ship. And the French captain came to him And on the the foredeck of Nelson's uh, ship, he held out his hand like this to shake Nelson's hand. Nelson stood stock still. Actually, I think he only had one arm at this stage, but let's put that to one side. And he he simply said, your sword first, sir. In other words, surrender. Wherever he went, as was his custom, he explained from the scriptures, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you, he is the Messiah, Jesus, your Lord. I guess there are a number of people coming up to university for the first time, perhaps coming into London for the first time. Remember when I first went up to university, I knew I was Christian. 
and I wanted to follow Jesus, I hadn't realized that he's, that he's Lord. Your sword first, sir. And maybe that's a helpful word for us, some of us, this evening. Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah. But notice Paul's route to demonstrating the lordship of Jesus. He could, I guess, have gone in any number of directions. And this is a summary, and in Acts chapter 13, we see one of his full sermons. So we mustn't draw too much from this. Uh, But here, do you notice Paul's route explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. I wonder what you make of that. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. I think there are possible, two possible directions in which it was necessary. On the one hand, the whole of the Bible story speaks of God entering into the world and of God coming in the form of his Christ and of his Christ's suffering for the sin of the world. And I guess the apostle will have gone back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I would imagine, where, where we read that uh, uh, one of Eve's seed would crush the head of, the Satan, even, of Satan even as he was bruised. Or, or Genesis chapter 22, where we read that God will make provision of a sacrifice. Or of Exodus 12, where God's people are ransomed by the payment of a price of a sacrifice, or Leviticus 16 and the day of the atonement and the need for atonement for sin, or, 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 or 1 and 2 Samuel where the king is a humble servant, lowly figure, or of Psalm 22 where the king must suffer, or Psalm 69 where the king must suffer because of his acute concern for righteousness and justice in order to win a people for himself, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or any of the other multiple places where God promises for centuries before the coming of the Christ that he would come into this world in the form of his suffering king to die and rise again. So I guess there was a little bit of a Bible overview done by the Apostle Paul as he was there in in the synagogues for those three weeks. I find that very persuasive. You know, it's not just a group of people sat down with a piece of paper. They didn't have paper, but they don't know a group of people just sat down, you know, with, with a pencil. They didn't have pencils, but whatever it is, they sat down and, and they thought, oh, what are we going to dream up? Oh, let's dream up, you know, the Christ coming into the world. No, no, no. There's thousands of years of anticipation. And what Paul did was to show that vast matrix of expectation that the Christ would come and demonstrate that Jesus, who suffered and died and rose again, is the Christ. It was necessary. He must. But there is another sense in which that word must be, might be understood. I want you to turn uh, back to page 742, page 742. You should find yourself in a book, the prophet Isaiah, page 742, Isaiah chapter 53. And I want us just to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. 
He's talking here about his servant figure who he will send. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now this speaks, it's a whole Bible theme, of the necessity, if there is to be friendship with God, for our moral and spiritual failure to be paid for. Iniquity, transgression, sin, that's all about our moral and spiritual failure our rejection of God, the lies we've lived that we're so ashamed of so often. And all the way through the Bible, if there is to be friendship with God and membership of the kingdom of God, our sin must be dealt with. And so as well as tracing through that the whole Bible insists that the Christ must suffer and die from Genesis right the way through, Paul, at the same time, surely is saying, you know, if you're going to have a relationship with the living God, there must be something done about our sin, our transgression, our iniquity, our failure. And the Christ, Jesus, who came into the world, is the one who went to the cross out of his extraordinary love for you and me, in order to carry God's judgment at our sin. The method, the message. Well, you see, the Jews were jealous. They didn't like it. They kicked up a fuss like we saw last week. Nothing new there. We saw Jason is immensely courageous. He sticks with Paul. We'll come to others like him in two weeks. I'm going to put him to one side. Uh, and we'll come back to Jason. Don't worry, Jason, we're coming back to you. But then you've got the Bereans. They, verse 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. And it seems to me here we have the blueprint of how the gospel is going to advance in our generation. I use that word loosely. How is the gospel going to advance from 2023 to 2050? How are you going to carry it forward? Reasoning from the scriptures. Opening the scriptures. Laying before people the scriptures. And then examining the scriptures with all eagerness. And that is everything that we're about here. It's what we were doing this evening so what's going to be happening on Tuesday, Wednesday evening through this week? It's everything that we're about. And if you want the gospel to advance in your place of work, your school, your university, your hospital, your office, this is how it will go forward. It's not magic. It's not mystical. It goes forward through the opening of the scriptures. And as we do that with people, God works. But then as we are, if you like, Berean and examine the scriptures, it will happen in our own lives too.
And I pray that will be the case. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We think of the multiplicity of places and groups of people represented here this evening. Our Father, thank you for bringing us together to hear your word to us. We pray that the word would mightily advance where you have put each one of us over these next weeks, that it might prevail. And so we pray that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of Paul and Jason, Silas and others as those who reason, open, lay before the scriptures to our friends. In Jesus' name, amen.